Welcome back to the Upon This Rock podcast. My name is Max Thomas, and I had a great, great conversation to share with you guys today. Um, Speaking to Dr. Glenn Kreider, who's a professor at Dallas Theological Seminary, my alma mater. Um, I actually had Dr. Kreider for three classes while I was um, at the seminary, and including he oversaw uh, my final research paper, my version of essentially a master's thesis. And so I got to have a number of good conversations with Dr. Kreider over the years and um, was surely the most uh, influential professor that I had when I was at seminary um, in in a number of different ways. Um, He was honestly incredible. And so um, I had a conversation with him today about... um, getting hurt by the church and and how we walk through that and the reality of that and some of the dynamics around that. And it was a just a great conversation. I think you're really going to enjoy. And hopefully, hopefully if you have experienced that, um, you find this helpful as well. And so uh, I'm going to get out of the way and uh, introduce uh, Dr. Glenn Kreider. Let's go. Okay, welcome back to the Upon This Rock podcast. My name is Max Thomas, and I have with me today uh, Dr. Glenn Kreider. Dr. Kreider, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. How are you? Doing well. Doing well. It's hot where I am, but, you know, such is life. And uh, you're in Dallas, so you'll be hot in a matter of a couple of weeks, and then we can just commiserate together. Yeah, it's uh, early summer here. It's the middle of our uh, rainy season before the long hot summer comes our way so as you can see just see also the power just went out and uh so but i'm still here this is what it means to live in the middle east your power just goes out whenever it goes out and so you have to have a little flashlight in front of your computer so your guest can still see you <laughs> <laughs> the things we the things we in america take for granted <laughs> I, I, yeah, it just it just is what it is. Yeah. Um, so uh, I want to have a conversation about when when you get hurt, uh, when you get hurt by the church. Um, I took a class with you on the doctrine of sin and uh, angels and anthropology, I think, was the, the class. And but I remember you sharing some stories in that class. And we had some discussion about and I don't even remember now because it was a couple of years ago about what was all said. But um, I remember having this one very honest, vulnerable, or you having this one honest kind of vulnerable moment with the class. And as somebody who grew up in the church, you kind of read between the lines of he's been through some stuff and yet getting to know you uh, during my time in seminary. Also know this guy still loves the church. He's still in the church. He's still involved in the church and cares deeply about the people of God. And not everybody has that story. Not everybody has the story of, yep, I've got some battle scars, some really deep ones that I'll carry with me for a long time, uh, but I'm still here and engaged. And so I thought you'd be a great person to have on the 
on the pod and talk about it. So let, let's start here. I'll just throw out a kind of a theological reflection that I was thinking about in, in preparing for this. And we'll just see where that kind of takes us. And we'll open it from there. I was thinking about how I think one way that you can tell the story of the Bible, the story of God in the scriptures, one of the ways is that the scriptures are telling the story of how God is healing a, healing a world that was built by Cain. And we get this story of obviously Adam and Eve, and then they leave the garden. And the first story you have after that is a brother rising up and killing his brother. And God comes down to meet him just like he did his parents in the garden. And he sets a mark on him, and but he has to continue to go east. And but then we get the little note, and Cain built the first city. And there's something in this world that is built by Cain, where we tend to not be our brother's keepers. We tend to to injure one another. Whether I mean that obviously was murder, that was purposeful. But whether purposefully or not purpose, purposefully, there there is injury and woundedness all around the world. And one of the ways to tell the story of, of God, I think the story of the gospel is that the story of the gospel is Jesus coming to heal a world that was built by Cain. And that at the center of that project in many ways is this new ish, however you want to view the relationship with Israel and whatever, but this community called the church where we're meant to be a people that sees each other as brothers and sisters and heal each other's wounds. And yet that doesn't happen all really most of the time. And I mean, I think there's some inevitability about people being wounded by the church, but I'd love to maybe start our conversation about maybe setting the table for us of what, what does it mean for us to actually be the church and the people of God? And what's our calling that we are supposed to aspire to? And then from there, maybe we can get into, okay, when we fail to reach that calling, when we fail to live up to that calling, how do we navigate that and how do we, how do we move forward? Yeah, there's, there's about 85 questions in there and 375 different directions. So it's okay. I learned from the best. I learned from you. <laughs> Let me start here. Um, I am a big fan of the church. Um, I am not somebody from the outside who criticizes and i don't want to be critical of people who uh, who identify as ex-christians or ex-evangelicals that the pain is such that they feel the need to leave but i do i i do uh, believe that the church is worth fighting for that the purity of the the gospel is worth defending and that somehow we should be about being redemptive in this world um, i think uh, secondly, that it is not at all surprising that the church would hurt people because the church is made up of people and we all are fallen. We are all broken. We are all selfish. We are all self-centered. We are all egotistical. We are all uh, self-defensive. All those, all those things that characterize what you spend a lot of time talking about in anthropology and in martyology, uh, the doctrine of humanity and sin. Uh, all those things that we give kind of intellectual assent to and lip service to, 
But it's another thing entirely when we live in that fallenness and brokenness and we experience the effects and impact of it. Third, um, I don't think, although this is, well, let me finish my sentence. I don't think most churches and most church leaders set out to be cruel and abusive and hurt people. There are those kind of people in the world. There are abusers in the world who are grooming people to take advantage of. I mean, they, they exist. But I think usually what happens is um, people handle differences of opinion and conflict in unhealthy and unhelpful ways. So how do we how do we wrestle and deal with that? I really like the way you put it. So number four, I really like the way you put it. Uh, I'll say one other thing first. So when I teach on the doctrine of the church at the seminary, I ask early in the semester for students to write a short paper um, reflecting on their experience in the church. And I've been doing this now for almost <laughs> for a couple of decades. <laughs> there you go. There you go. That's good. Um, and I don't have the data at my fingertips, but I have anecdotal evidence and memories that these, these papers fall into a, almost a perfect bell curve. There are a handful of students who have had just an amazing experience in the church. They can't imagine anything any better than their experience in the church. They have these fond memories and like, yeah, they're, and then on the other end of the continuum are about the same number of people whose experience in the church has been horrific from betrayal to abuse, to um, financial mismanagement, to, I mean, sexual abuse. I mean, just, uh, there's all kinds of horrific stories. They're heartbreaking. And then everybody else is in the middle here somewhere where there are positives and negatives, there are strengths and weaknesses. As I've thought about that over the years, it strikes me as it's really not surprising because that, that kind of is everybody's, that kind of is the big story that there are people who grow up in relatively healthy families. There are people who grow up in horrific families. And then there are the rest of us in between that are kind of a mixture of both. But so back to your, your Cain illustration, over the years of teaching that story, I don't think you can understand the biblical story apart from those first couple of chapters in the book of Genesis. But over the years of teaching those stories and seeing how the first generation after the, uh, after the fall, but the first story after the fall is a story of conflict between two brothers. And it's conflict between two brothers that starts with God. When Cain's upset, at his brother Abel because God likes him and he's he can't he can't get to God he can't lash out at God so he lashes out and kills his brother and I, th I think that's kind of paradigmatic of much of the frustration and anger people feel in this world but God's response to Cain is so I I think it's so shocking he does nothing to defend Abel but he comes to Cain warns him and then after Cain kills his brother, God comes and protects him. So the question I started to ask um, over the years is, so do you want God to treat you the way he treated Abel or the way he treated Cain? And almost everybody says, I want him to treat me the way he treated Abel, to which I say, Abel's dead. He did nothing to protect him. 
the person who receives the grace of God is the murderer. And all the blessings, that's the end of that uh, chapter, after building a, a, a city, out of that, the end of that chapter, we have the line of Cain, out of which comes music and technology and animal husbandry, all the, all the blessings and benefits of culture, because God is at work responding to rebellion with mercy and grace. God is at work responding to rebellion in a way that blesses the descendants and the whole world through this man. So here's my punchline to the Cain story, which you set up really nicely. Do you want God to treat you the way he treats Cain or the way he treats Abel? You want him to treat you the way he treats Cain because you are Cain. And if we realize and acknowledge that we are fallen, broken people, that we break everything we touch, and that if we had the opportunity to have our way, we would be just like Cain. We would be just like Cain. Um, and if there's, because if there's one thing that characterizes the theological conversation and political conversation in the United States of America, it's this polarization of the right and the left of the the good and the bad and we we, we just desperately need to do a little more talking to one another so that would be the that would be the the thing i would say we have got to figure out how as people are who are united to god through faith in christ we have got to figure out how to treat one another in healthy and redemptive ways to encourage and help one another that those commands in scripture the one another stuff uh, means the, the life of faith cannot be lived in isolation from other people and it also means that we've got to figure out how to to care for and love one another in a real healthy way that's what the church is supposed to be about that's that's what she's supposed to do among other things but she's she is to demonstrate this is what jesus said she's to demonstrate to the world what it looks like that the father loves the son and has given uh, him him to us so that we would demonstrate our love for one another yeah your cane punchline is a good one. That's a really good one. Um, I've never thought about. It. I mean, I've I've never thought about it in the sense that. Um, how would you want God to treat you like He treated Abel, or treat you like He treated Cain? And that's a. I, th I think the issue here is many of us were trained to read the Bible identifying with the good guy um, and, and demonizing the bad guy. When in the biblical story, there are no good guys except Jesus. Everybody's a bad guy. And as we, as we see ourselves in these stories, rather than, seeing, rather than seeing myself as the hero of the story, I'm the one in the story who needs redemption. So I'm, I'm not the prodigal son who returns home. I'm the older brother who's proud of my having served faithful. I mean, I grew up in the church. I've been in church since I was an infant. Uh, I deserve something from God. And so, I, I mean, I really resonate with the anger and the frustration that the older brother feels. So two things uh, two things from that one how then does that position us if if god treats cain like he does 
which is just offensive grace. There's no other way to put it. It's just, it's overwhelmingly good, but offensive grace. Um, but that you hear, I've heard this my whole life. People will say that and then they will immediately caveat that but say, yeah, yeah, yeah okay, but you can't be a doormat and let people just walk all over you and let, you know, that the canes of the world just go around and kill everybody and whatever, like, and they always, you know, they always come back like you got to eventually, you know, punish the person and hold them accountable and da, 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 da. And they're, however, they're thinking about that is one subject, but I think they are putting their, their finger on something that is somewhat true, that when God does that to Cain, it isn't to absolve Cain and just let Cain walk away. So how do we, but most of us think about, I think, I think most people really think mercy means I let the person go and justice means I hold them accountable. Yet there's something about the cross in which the cross is both simultaneously the revelation of the mercy of God and the justice of God in Jesus Christ. And in that same moment that we're seeing those two things at the same time in their fullness, it's the full revelation of the God of mercy, and it's the full revelation of the God of justice. But most of us think those two things can't coexist. They can't be together because if I, if I forgive this person, that just means that I'm giving them a license to do whatever they want and walk away. And so if my pastor hurts me, does something that I don't like, or whatever somebody in the church is gossiping about me and and if i forgive them that just is going to give them a license to do whatever they want um how do we how do we deal with with that tension so forgiveness doesn't mean absolving the person of the harm and the evil committed it means choosing not to internalize and not to define myself by what that person has done to me, which I think is why Jesus calls his disciples to stop counting the number of times to forgive. I don't think the forgiving 70 times seven or seven, whatever, um, 70 times or 70 times. If you're counting, you missed the whole point. I don't think this is forgiving for different offenses, but it's forgiving for the same offense over and over and over again. But forgiveness doesn't mean absolving the person. I mean, a person who commits an act of betrayal is, is unlikely ever to be in a position to re-earn the trust that is lost. A person who has taken advantage of someone uh, isn't put in the position to be able to do that again. Uh, that that forgiveness doesn't mean it's all okay. It's it, it it's it's a way of saying it's not. It's kind of what Joseph does to his brothers. What you did was evil, but God brought good out of it because in the end, mercy always triumphs over judgment. Uh, I, I got that from the Bible. Jesus' um, brother said that. Uh, I think it's also, it's deeply embedded in the Old Testament. You're a God who takes no pleasure in the destruction of the wicked. You're a God who delights in showing mercy. And so here's, here's my response to that, 
the, the first scenario you laid out. I think many of us are, many of us lack wisdom. And we, we know that eventually grace will be abused. So the, in order to avoid, this might be a bit simplistic, but stick with me, that we know grace will eventually be abused. So we'll solve the problem of grace being abused by being stingy with grace. When maybe it's at least worth considering that grace actually does transform. Maybe, as one of my pastors puts it, maybe grace actually is a thought that can change the world. That maybe, maybe there, maybe we have, maybe we've given up on grace way too soon. And that uh, instead of using grace as a means of manipulation and control, which I really think is a lot of what drives us post the garden is the attempt to control our lives and to control other people's lives and then ultimately to control what what god does and that's what makes karma so attractive that's what the law of sowing and reaping is so attractive that we can see this one-to-one -one correspondence between what i do and the effects and what you do and the effects but you're exactly right there is nothing more offensive than unmerited favor that people don't merely receive what they deserve but they get this incredible overflow of god's grace i'm committed to the proposition and i hope i'm committed to the proposition not just intellectually and rationally but in lifestyle as well that that grace actually does transform people and that uh, mercy triumphs over judgment. So rather than being afraid that grace will be taken advantage of, let's try it and see if it actually does transform. But but I also have to say this because you're exactly, I know exactly what you're going to say in response because you already said it. But if we do that, then people are going to do whatever they want. They're going to like, can I just say, first off, they're going to do whatever they want anyhow. They're going to figure out some way to do it. And and yet we we do have to be we do have to i'm not arguing that we don't have boundaries so we don't have limitations i mean a a christian community that doesn't protect its children a christian community that doesn't protect the privacy of its members a christian community that doesn't that doesn't defend people against oppression and evildoers is a Christian community that's not deserving to be called Christian. I mean, obviously we, we establish boundaries to protect and that's, that becomes where it's really challenging and, and difficult that many times the attempt to, uh, to protect creates pain and trauma for innocent people. And I think sometimes the attempt to protect is actually just at least in part, maybe an attempt to what you just said, control and to get our, our hands, because I mean, the, the irony of that other question of well, won't people just do whatever they want. Paul actually brings up and answers this exact question. And he goes, listen, like, so if grace abounds, should we just do whatever we want? No, not at all. Like um, grace 
overcomes all of those things. If true grace is at work, mercy, like you just said, mercy triumphs over judgment. There is, there is a power. And, and this is, I did a previous episode um, with somebody on the power of God. And we had this great conversation about Paul in first Corinthians and how he redefines the power of God for us around the death of Jesus, that the cross is the power of God. It does not look like the power or the wisdom of God, but it is the power of God because unmerited mercy and grace and forgiveness and love is the only thing that can actually transform the human heart. Coercion and control have no ability to do that. We just think about the power of God in all these other terms as miracles and lightning and thunder and all that kind of stuff. But Paul thinks about the power of God as the cross and the message of the cross, that this is what I came to you with, knowing nothing but Christ and him crucified, because this is the power and the wisdom of God. And if we're in a community like the church, where people are going to be wounded, and you will be wounded, and I have been wounded, and some of those very, very deep. There's a handful of stories. I mean, so I, I'm not, everybody's going to have little, the, the pastor didn't do what I liked or whatever, but I'm talking about like deep, deep offenses that I have two or three stories um, that I will carry with me the rest of my life, and I will have, in a sense, scars for the rest of my, for the rest of my, they have shaped part of who I, who I am because of the injury that occurred. And the question, I, I think when we're trying to figure out how do we, how do we live when we get hurt by the church is exactly what you are, I think, so brilliantly putting your finger on. It's, we have to, grace is the only thing that can heal a wound that goes that deep. The moment we try to control it, turn it back around on the other person, mitigate it in some way with our with our own abilities or whatever, we are we are short circuiting the work of the spirit because the work of the spirit is cruciform. It looks like the cross. It is mercy. It is forgiveness. It is grace. It is radical love towards even the person that did that wrong towards us. It looks like the Sermon on the Mount. And the gamble that I think we all have to take eventually, um, especially in those two or three times that most of us will face in our life when something really does cut us deep from a either a minister or a church or a fellow Christian is, are we willing to give grace a chance in that moment? Is God's grace really what we think that it is for ourselves? And then are we willing to forgive and extend that grace to someone else? It's, it's the last verse in Ephesians 4, 30 or 31 or whatever is, Paul says, forgive others just as Christ has forgiven you. So at some point, that is the, the, the task is, are we willing to extend what God has given to us or what we believe that God has given to us? And do we see ourselves as a Cain that because I am Cain and God has actually marked me and protected me with his name, now someone else has, has wronged me? Am I willing to, to be God to that person? 
and extend God's mercy and grace to that person. And, and yet, exactly right. Um, by the way, uh, Paul also calls that message of a crucified Savior foolishness. Uh, it's a, I mean, it really is a, it, it, it turns upside down all of our expectations. And ultimately, it's the resurrection that then makes everything right, makes everything new. Uh, I, I do think it's important also to point out that extending grace to someone and extending forgiveness to someone doesn't mean that we can are required to continue to place ourselves in painful, evil circumstances. Uh, and I'm not talking about uh, the pastor. I don't like that the pastor preached on that text. I don't like that illustration he used. I don't like what that. I'm talking about real evil perpetuated in the name of the gospel, in the name of Christ, um, whether intentional or unintentional, that there, there are times and places to say, I forgive you, but I will not allow you to do that again. I forgive you for what you did. I will be gracious to you because God has forgiven me, but I will not sit here and I will not be here while you continue to do this. We, we also need to be speaking up on behalf of people who have been traumatized, who have been abused, whether it's a personal thing or we're aware of somebody else. That what often happens, I don't want to overstate the case, but what often happens is that protecting the institution becomes more important than than speaking justice and acting justly for those who have been abused and those who have been mistreated, because it is true. I mean, it's, control is one thing and power is another that power corrupts. Um, and the, the greater the image, the greater the, the empire that has been built, the more self-protective sometimes those organizations become so they 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 become they sometimes become trauma factories when we look at any of the recent last i mean last five years or so a number of high profile stories in the american evangelical church those 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 things didn't happen overnight they they were part of a pattern of behavior and so that i wonder sometimes looking back at, at my my own family's traumatic experiences in the church that um i know there's a time to leave but i, I sometimes ask um how might i have helped the next generation or people who who are, who are still part of this church to recognize the kinds of things that happen whether it's a church that is intentionally um, unwelcome for people who dress differently, uh, who have a different skin tone, um, who have different lifestyle practices. Um, that the real challenge of calling people to this is another, but since I started, this is a, calling people to living. Christianly 
um, which is not merely a matter of do these things one time and everything's taken care of, but this following Christ thing, loving others well, is an ongoing process that is a great deal of of up and down, a great deal of stumble and pick ourselves back up again. And uh, yeah, I want to be part of a community that helps strugglers struggle well, instead of a community that demands perfection and anybody who falls from that level of perfection is somehow excluded from the community, either, either deliberately and actually or just marginalized and and pushed away and hope that made some sense if not yeah no no yeah no absolutely and you said something in there that actually i had in my notes to bring up is one of the buzzword one of the buzzwords at least in the circles that i have run in over the years is unity everybody wants unity community and unity those are like the two community and unity and one of the things that I've seen over the years is that in the pursuit of unity, there is a, when someone is hurt, whether small or big, there is a, exactly what you said, there's a, a reaction by the church in the name and in the name of unity that I don't want to disrupt the unity or to bring division to hide the problems away behind closed doors. And, and obviously I'm not saying we just, you know, air people's dirty laundry or whatever, but um, to hide all the problems behind the scenes, you know, behind the, the closed door of the conference room in the back of the church or in the pastor's office and nothing ever gets out, nothing is ever said. And so you get people who are hurt and struggling and nobody really knows because all of the internal mechanisms of the church are such that, hey, what I don't want to do is bring division to the church by people talking here and people talking there. Even if talking is just like, hey, like I got wounded and I need somebody to talk to. Um, and everything is tried to, is, is to, to be funneled, funneled back. And that takes a whole bunch of different forms or whatever. But um, how is, can you speak into that a, a little bit, like either in your own experience or just observations that you've made on those kind of structural things? Because I've seen people and have had people in my life who have been hurt, who have tried to have conversations and then have later come back and told me, yeah, I was just kind of pushed to the back room. And I was kind of told like, hey, don't be, don't be divisive. Don't bring division. And everything was just, so then everything in you know, Sunday morning, fantasy land looks great when actually there's just a whole bunch of hurting people all in the same room and nobody knows it. And so st struggling people are not allowed to struggle out in the open with each other. Everybody struggles. Everybody's fallen. Everybody's broken. Everybody's wounded. And one of my great desires for the church, and we're actually in a church now that does this fairly well, is that there, there would be in the life of the church, the life of the church community together, that there would be opportunities to experience, to live out, 
to critique, to evaluate the whole range of human emotions and experiences. We are the church in the United States of America. We are a celebratory church. We, we do, we do, we call it worship. Um, we do celebration really well. We're happy, happy, happy all the time. And we make sure our face will surely show it. All those things we learned in Sunday school. When the reality is that's not, that's not where life is. Uh, the, and the biblical story is full of people who grieve and people who lament and people who are in pain. Um, and I, I think what if a church is, is working at building that kind of a community, where the goal is not to fix, but to allow, to give people space to experience and to express, then I think we're on the way towards creating a healthy environment where, where, where things are out in the open. The goal is not complete openness and vulnerability. There are things that should remain private, but when a, when a person brings, I mean, so um, if there is, and the Bible says this, you don't entertain a, a, char, a charge against an elder unless there are more than one witness. Well, the great challenge is pedophiles and other abusers don't have witnesses. So how do you provide witnesses if you're the victim, you, you just simply can't. And sometimes what happens, and a whole host of recent stories illustrate this, what happens when one or two people are allowed to tell their story, others say, yeah, me too, and me too. And I think some of the, the institution's response to that, some of the power's response to that is to say, it would be better to hide this because we might discover there's a greater problem than we thought we had. And then there are gonna be lawsuits and like, I, I know, but- Or just people leaving the church and yeah. Yeah, wouldn't it be better to begin to create a culture? And maybe I'm naive. I mean, I, in the midst of all my cynicism and skepticism, I have a really optimistic view of the power of the gospel to transform. I actually do believe that it's possible for us to do better than we're doing. I, I think it's actually possible, but wouldn't it be better to, to actually create such some kind of an open community and environment where we are aware of these things and we deal with them promptly, we deal with them Christianly, following Matthew 18 and other places and, and just actually actually deal with them, let them out in the open. Because I think the same thing happens. I think there's a parallel here. When pain, abuse, when trauma is pushed down inside, it's not acknowledged in the individual. It doesn't go away because the body keeps the score. I think the same thing is true in the church, that a Christian community that that tries to squelch and hide and keep private its wounds and its pain will eventually turn on itself and it'll 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 destroy the body so that community without these loving caring for one another relationships is not community at all and unity where there are 
family secrets that nobody ever talks about where everybody where everybody's aware or almost everybody's aware that there are things that, that we simply don't talk about that's not real unity that's i don't know what to call that it's it but it's not the kind of unity the bible was asking for but then here's the real tension and there are a whole host of these in this conversation um there is the the need to know there is there are the things that are appropriate to share that here's has always been in the institutions of which i've been a part when somebody who was a very active contributing member of the community all of a sudden disappears and there's no narrative there's no explanation um all kinds of rumors start and so early in my career at dallas seminary a faculty member was let go and left and i, I appreciated that time how the president issued a statement and said this is this is what happened this is why that this is why that person is no longer here then i mean whether or not that squelches all rumors and at least says this is this is the this is the reason i mean and and if we and it's not because we want to be able to look down on him or think better of ourselves because it it is true there but for the grace of god go all of us but it, but it's simply not true that every single one of us is going to commit the same sins and 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 it, it, we don't all do this the same thing so so in a recent case when a prominent Christian leader was exposed to have been engaged with um, traffic victims and, and people said publicly on Twitter, but we all have sins. Like, well, we do all have sin, but we don't all do traffic people. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Could we just, could we just say the easiest way to avoid being criticized of abusing people is don't abuse people then you will never be accused of it it's just uh, but and then i think related to that is the the hierarchy uh, we in the west think of everything in terms of hierarchies so that certain sins are worse than others and so if you're gonna you can't treat every everyone or everything the same but like we know justice doesn't treat everyone the same either and neither does great neither does grace there's a there's a super jesus told a couple stories about that the, the person who has been forgiven much loves much uh, in order to really so I'm, I'm, i'll say this and i'll stop again um i've heard people say on more than one occasion that you can always tell that somebody that talks about grace has something to hide and my response is well of course and the fact that you don't talk about grace probably indicates either that you don't think you have anything to hide, then that would be really sad, or you're hiding it really, really well. So join the rest of us and acknowledge, you know, life is hard and following Christ, loving people the way Christ loved us really is difficult and a challenge. Uh, so yeah, I did want to come back to that. Um, to love as we have been loved. I think in the context of the Sermon on the Mount, that you will be forgiven. If you forgive others, you will be forgiven. It's it's all about hypocrisy. Judge not that you be not judged doesn't mean we shouldn't judge. As Jesus says in the very next verse, the standard you use against others will be the standard that will be applied to you. And I've become increasingly aware of 
how we can really maybe summarize all of the Sermon on the Mount, maybe even all of Jesus' teaching. That's always dangerous, but summarize the teaching and don't be a hypocrite. I mean, if you're going to hold other people to this standard, then you have the responsibility to meet that same standard or else you're hypocritical. Let me throw another Old Testament story at you. One that I thought a bunch about um, in 2018 when my, my wife and I went through, it was probably the hardest time that we've gone through in the church. And um, it was the story of Abraham and Abraham when he sacrifices his son. And the reason that became so difficult for me is Abraham is just trying to follow God. He is sincere. The, the Lord speaks to him and he is doing his best to be obedient and to follow what God has asked him to do. And following God led him to wounding his family members. I mean, if we read, if you go back and read the story carefully, what it says is that when they leave the mountain, Isaac, it's just Abraham and his servants that Isaac is not named. And that when he gets back home, the next time we hear about Sarah, she's living in a different place. And Isaac is living with her. And in the, the rest of Abraham's life, Isaac and Sarah are never to have at least said to be with Abraham again. So what, what it, at least from what we have, it seems like that decision to follow God caused woundedness in his own family to the point that Sarah ends up living in a different place so that when she dies, Abram has to go to a different city to bury her because she's not, they're not together. And there's a, there's a distinction here. Like you, you made at the very beginning that I want to circle back to. There's the, there are the people that they're just, they're, they're wolves and sheep, sheep's clothing, and they're doing all kinds of crazy stuff. But I agree with you. I, as cynical as I am as well. Maybe that's why I liked you so much as a professor is because I had somebody who shared my, my cynicism. I don't think most people, most pastors, most churches are trying to injure people. I really don't. I think what they are trying to do is to, like Abraham, is follow God. And, and in their attempt to follow God in the best way they know how, it actually injures and wounds other people. Not because God meant for them to injure and wound other people, but because that's the nature of us following God in a broken world as broken humans surrounded by other broken humans. So we just bump into each other, even when we're trying to follow Jesus and we, and we, we injure each other, even unintent unintentionally. And Isaac ends up kind of reliving Abraham's life and then eventually ends back up at the tree that they set out from. And it's there that the Lord shows up to him and reveals himself as I'm the God of your father, Abraham, which when you read the story through that lens, like can't be good news. It's the same news as Cain is, Hey, Isaac, I'm at the one who injured you that you've been running from all these years. I actually am his God and he's mine. I am the God of Abraham and I'm also the God of Cain. Um, they both have my mercy and my grace. 
but I, how do we walk through? Because I think this is probably most of our experiences is just leaders, pastors, or other people are actually just trying to follow Jesus. And in their attempt, we become not collateral damage because that's, but like we get wounded in their attempt to actually just be faithful, faithful to Jesus. What, what would you say about that? And how then if we, if we think about it that way, and we even use the Abraham story as kind of paradigmatic, like how do we, how does that help us treat each other when someone, the pastor, whoever actually wounds me? there are wolves in sheep's clothing there are evil people in the world there are evil people in the church i don't want to miss the fact that there are some people who really are mean and they do want to hurt people but a lot of it then we'll come back to abraham a lot of it as i've watched and as looked at my own stories and heard other people's stories oftentimes it's fear that 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 turns people mean. They don't mean to be mean, but they're afraid. So we go through challenges with our kids over the years, um, and people refuse to have interaction with us any longer. I think it's because somehow they thought that we were tainted and that somehow our bad parenting skills would rub off on them or something like I couldn't I couldn't make any sense of it that Abraham story and you you put a twist on it for me today that's really helpful as I think about it also to point out that not only does Isaac no longer live with his dad he settles at Behir Lahore Roy at the place where God the God of Abraham appeared to his um, brother when Abraham's second wife, Hagar, was carrying um, him. So it is fascinating to me that Abraham settles, <clears throat> because in the biblical story, places really do matter, that Abraham, uh, that Isaac rather settles not with Abraham, but with the, the one we generally think is the rejected one. But God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is also the God of Abraham and Ishmael and his descendants too. He's the God of Esau. He's the God of Sarah. He's the God of, uh, he's the God of all these people. They are all, all of those are connected to Abraham. <clears throat> what strikes me about that story is, and I think you're exactly right. This is the new lens you've given me that Abraham thought he was doing what God wanted him to do. What if he was wrong? And what if that was a test that Abraham failed? And what if rather than traumatizing his son and grandsons and the whole family line afterwards, what if, how would things have been different if somebody, and there's nobody there for Abraham, except maybe Sarah, what if, and maybe Hagar, but she's gone. What, how would it have been different if somebody who loved Abraham, who cared for Abraham, could have said to Abraham, I don't think this is what God wants you to do. And we know that's actually the end of the story because Abraham, God stops Abraham from doing it. So we know God didn't want Abraham to kill his son. But I think, I mean, that's the, the, the spin you put on that story that's helpful for me thinking through it again today. 
that many people who are leaders in the church, many people who are using scripture to defend their view really do think they're right. I mean, as I watch, <clears throat> and here we are in the early summer of 2021, and we're watching the largest pro Protestant denomination in the United States of America splinter, the Southern Baptist Convention. And I, I don't think there's any question that the people on the, on the, on the conservative end, the, the far right, really do believe that they are defending the Bible. I mean, they they really do believe that the gospel is dependent upon only men preachers. They really do believe that racism doesn't exist. I mean, they really do believe that stuff. And the people on the other hand, rather than just saying, you know, this is, how could you be so blind to this? And 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 that they, they really believe that their flaws are, they're blind to their own flaws too. And that the, 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 um, the challenges of getting, of getting what God, getting God's will wrong, the, the, the challenge of misunderstanding God's direction and, and God's voice, um, it, it, it often results in wounded people. And here's the part of the story that is probably most challenging is God could have stopped that story very early, but he didn't. He let Abraham pack up his family. He let Abraham leave his wife, Sarah, behind, and he, he let them make that journey to, Mount, to the mountain and even bind Isaac and put him on the altar and lift the knife before he ever stops him. And I, I got to tell you, there's a, that's usually the way, that's often the way God works. It would be really nice if God would always come to the aid of people before they are hurt. It would be nice to be able to tell people, if you're a follower of Jesus, you will never be abused. You will never be raped. You will never be taken advantage of. You'll never have a car accident. You'll never get sick because God will provide and take care of you, but he doesn't. And that the I mean, that's the greatest of all apologetic problems for Christianity. How, how can we worship a God who is gracious and merciful, compassionate and loving and abounding in loving kindness, he is a God who is good all the time, and yet he is a God who watches evil uh, being per, uh, perpetuated or perpetrated, either way, in his world, and he does nothing to stop it. Uh, but, and I think there, God would, when, when I express my frustration about that, I, I, I sense God, if he spoke to me, I don't think he does, but I, I sense God saying, so why don't you do something about it? If, if you're frustrated by the abuse, by the injustice that occurs in this world, then one, you should stop being a perpetrator of it. You should, to the degree that you are, and you should, God has the right to talk to me that way, that you should no longer keep silent and by your silence um, applying consent. And you should be active in to the degree that you're able, calling attention to it and, and stopping it. And I don't think that's antithetical 
to treating people with grace. Again, as we've said several times, grace doesn't mean that now there are no boundaries, now there are no consequences, now I can do whatever I want. It, it means that in the end, grace will always triumph over, um, over judgment. And, and that, that's really where I, I feel this real difficult tension because on the one hand, people who have been taken advantage of should receive justice that people shouldn't be allowed to perpetuate injustice with impunity. There, there ought to be, there must be consequences, but those consequences can't be antithetical to grace. So, 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 the, so Paul says in Romans that we leave vengeance to God because vengeance is mine. I will, I will repay. But here's, here's what I understand from the biblical story. Since God is not a God of vengeance, there will be no vengeance. So it's wrong for you and I to practice vengeance. We give it over to God, but guess what? God's not going to give God's justice. Vengeance and justice are not the same thing. You just opened up such a big can right there at the, at the end. I love it. Um, let's end. We'll, we'll end with this. So I'll just toss you a question to anybody who's listening to this, who is, right now walking through being wounded, um, whether because of things that they see in their own church or the church at large, uh, whether it's race or sexuality or, you know, mental illness and all of the, the, you know, misunderstandings around that or whatever it is. Um, what would you, what would you just encourage them with to, because I, I, I really do look up to people like you who are like, hey, I have scars and I still love the church. Um, and I still think what, what you opened us with is the church is worth fighting for. The vision of a pure and spotless bride is worth fighting for because it's what Jesus is fighting for. Um, and yet it, it, especially I think in young people today, it, should, it is easy just to, to disconnect. You can go on YouTube and you can ironically listen to podcasts like this and you can get your spiritual stuff filled, you know, to some degree with preaching and worship and all that kind of stuff. Um, but once you take us home by what, what would you, somebody who's in that wrestle right now, what would you, uh, what would you say to them? There are all kinds of places to get content. There are all kinds of places and ways to have experiences, but you cannot have Jesus apart from the church. Uh, I, I think Derek Webb is so right about that. <clears throat> you cannot care for me with no regard for her. If you love me, Jesus says, you will love the church. And the church is not a disembodied, a... Um, yeah, all that, all the imagery that the New Testament uses for the church, whether it's a body or a family or a household or a building or a nation or a temple or a field, um, all of those are physical. They are embodied. And so it is possible to have a relationship with Jesus without a relationship to his body, but it will always be an inferior and a 
and I would, I actually use this word, it's a perverted one, to try to have a body without a head or a head without a body. And that's the great wonder of the biblical story, that the God who is self-sufficient, that the God who doesn't need anything, actually creates creatures, and he creates a creation and, and creatures who he knows will rebel against him. And they're the means of redeeming them, the means of making all things new, which is where the gospel ends is by taking on flesh, submitting himself to his enemies, um, allowing him, allowing them to kill him, and then coming back to make all things new. That God's condescension, God's humility for our sake is not merely for our sake, but I think is a model of how we should treat one another. So you can't have Jesus without the church. Uh, I would say, secondly, don't give up on her. Uh, she is precious to God. She is loved by God. And I think that's true, not, not just of the church universal in some broad sense, but it's true of the local churches, of the local manifestations, the localized bodies of Christ. So uh, he loves her. Don't give up on her. But I think it's also important to, to say this doesn't mean you need to stay in a community that's not a real community, in an environment that is toxic and painful and is abusive. To, to, continue, to, to continue to stay in that kind of an environment and expect a different result is, is it's, it's insanity. The, the, I mean, um, there are toxic environments. There are families that are toxic and that require for a person's spiritual and emotional health to say, you know, I, I really can't do this anymore. Um, and, but look for something. And one of the great benefits to being in a place like where I live, where there are churches on almost literally every street corner, it's easy for me to find a church. It's, it's easy to find me another church community. Um, there are Christians everywhere. And sometimes one of the greatest blessings to us is to be kind of forced, pushed into developing relationship with Christians that are different from us. Um, we, my wife and I have found a, we, we have found, God directed us to, it's a fascinating story, that we, we now worship in a community that's significantly different socioeconomically and racially and even um, de denominationally and theologically different from our the churches of either of our youths but we've we've re-experienced the gospel there and have fallen in love with the with the with the church there so uh, don't give up don't allow yourself to become to continually to continue in a toxic environment, but always be looking for Jesus. And I guess I, the other thing I might say is, it, if there's a sufficient degree of spiritual and emotional health, maybe be a trailblazer and be the change that you would like to see in the world. I know that's a cliche, but, but to, we, the church needs leaders too, uh, people who will step up and and say we're going to be we're going to be a community that that really does try 
to live out the offensiveness of the foolishness, that's a better word, the foolishness of the, uh, of the gospel and the power of grace to transform. Well, we'll leave it at that. I appreciate it. Um, this was a lot of fun. It was good to see you again. And um, I never got a chance to thank you for the A on my final research project that you gave me. I was <laughs> actually went back and reread that recently. And uh, I'd rewrite a section or two differently. Let's just put it, we'll put it that way. But, you know, we, we learn and grow and it's all good. <laughs> I appreciate that. The grace on my, on my paper. Oh, Lord help me um no this was this was a lot of fun and uh thank you so much for for helping and uh, spending time with us today